I can see a world one day where Oregon State and Washington State rebuild the Pac-12 and make it into the new Pac-12. I don't think that'd be a power conference, but why exactly is that the case? You are Locked On Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Locked On Pack 12. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day, and your number one source to stay up to date with our media rights free and Pack 2 dominated and beloved Conference of Champions. Like, comment, subscribe, rate, and review, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show. Lots to get to today, including why is Washington an underdog again? Is Vegas just not learning its lesson? I have some thoughts on that. But first, I have thoughts on a potentially rebuilt Pac-12. So this is a a very, very viable option for the Beavs and the Kooks. It's a viable option in part because of the result of uh, the lawsuit settlement they had with the departing 10 schools. They got a slightly outsized share of uh, the money that is in the Pac-12's war chest there. They've got a couple hundred million dollars to split between the two of them to help you know, keep funding at a Power 5 level, pay for coaches, maybe pay for exit fees for other schools down the line. A lot of options are, are in play there. But if the Pac-12 rebuilds in the vision that I have laid out before on this show with uh, a mix of six teams from the Mountain West and four teams from the American Conference, that league is, by definition not going to be, well, at least by colloquial definition, not going to be a power conference because it'd be primarily made up of group of five teams. You would have 10 teams that the season before joining would have been playing in a quote-unquote group of five conference. So what does that actually mean? And why can't the Pac-12 become a power school again one day? So this question came in from David. I touched on a little bit on yesterday's show, but wanted to go further in depth today. And he asked, you know, what makes a power conference? I mean, some of the Mountain West is borderline. I agree. Like Boise State and San Diego State. Fresno State would be in there as well. History says group of five teams can make the jump. So if Oregon State and Washington State add enough borderline teams to rebuild the pack, then maybe, just maybe, would it eventually graduate to a power conference, I would think. Could be a good listen either way. So a lot of this comes down to one of the key factors that has destroyed the Pac-12 as we know it, and that is money. Money is a very powerful entity. I think everybody's aware of that. I don't need to explain it. But the other side of the coin as to how we've gotten to the designation between power conferences and non-power conferences, which is not verbiage actually used by the NCAA. My understanding is that they use words like autonomous five or non-autonomous five and the benefits that are therefore granted to the teams and conferences in those particular leagues. The prestige of being what is what is known nowadays as a power conference dates back to kind of the late 20th century. So if you go back, college conferences and realignment has been happening for a very, very long time. There was the Southwest Conference once upon a time. The PAC long ago had a different name. You can find all sorts of conferences that have come and gone by the wayside that have added teams, changed and all this sort of stuff. The WAC, for instance, used to be a, a football league. It no longer is. That's where Boise State used to play when they were really, really good for a while before they joined the Mountain West because the WAC decided they didn't want to have football anymore. So that sort of movement has happened for quite a long time. 
way back in like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the designation, there weren't as many conferences, number one, there weren't as major college sports teams as there are today because it wasn't as expansive, there weren't as many people, and there are all sorts of reasons as to that. But the conferences were much closer to being on equal footing because you had the all-important number that was attendance determining where the big games were played and where the prestigious games were truly played and how those arrangements came to be, right? Is who wanted to go watch this team and that team. But then the way we got into this current space of power conferences and non-power conferences is television and money. So one of the biggest differences between the power leagues, the power, like let's just talk about the current Pac-12, you know, before it's dissolved and everything like that, the power five and the group of five is the total amount of revenue that the athletic department is able to generate. That's a huge consideration. It's not the only one, but it's a huge part of it. Some of that money, again, not all of it, comes from the television deal the conferences are able to get. Well, how does a television deal come to be? Teams put a product on the field that more people want to watch. Well, how did people become more interested in this team and that team? That's when you go back to the 1980s and 1990s, when television really started to take off and college football became a really, really big commodity on people's television screens. And then television got bigger and bigger and bigger. The most watched teams and programs during that era of media expansion, those are the ones that were dubbed to be the power conferences. They could get more money from the television networks. They were able to get more money from their conferences. They were able to play in the biggest games. And it came down to during that time, there were schools, alumni and fans and coaches and universities writ large that decided we want to be all in. We want to go and make sports a big part of what our school does. And when they did that, it then caught the attention of the television networks. And that's how it got started, right? It's like they were able to get on the ground floor with, I I don't know, a group of investors, essentially. And the investors, the television networks in this, this instance, were sitting around going, okay, what companies do we want to invest in? And the schools that we currently know to run power conferences, right, the Alabamas of the world or the Michigans, the Ohio States of the world, the USC's of the world, the Florida States of the world, those sorts of conferences that have been flagship football programs in their respective leagues, they were making the best prospective pitch to those investors, quote unquote, who then decided, yep, This is going to generate a lot of money for this reason or that reason. It wasn't always determined on population size of the city that your college is in. Alabama is going to be a power school forever and ever. They're in Tuscaloosa. That's not a big, it's not a big area, but they had Bear Bryant. Bear Bryant was a big name. He was a really successful coach. And so that's where the distinction really came to be. And if you look at the operating budgets of the power conferences, the schools in a power conference now and the schools that are not in a power conference, a group of five or uh, FCS or anything like that, it is a massive, I mean, massive difference. You have a number of power institutions whose revenue because of television ratings, because of investment from a fans, because of uh, support from alumni as well, because of branding, all this sort of stuff is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. You have others in the group of five that might not even crack $10 million. That is a sizable gap. So that's the foundation as to how power conferences came to be. 
Now, could the Pac-12 ever actually become that? My thinking is no. I don't see a world in which the Pac-12 can do that because one thing that you have to have at this point to create a power conference that is respected at that level is you have to have teams and universities that are grandfathered in with that inherent level of respect because garnering that respect when you didn't have it before and starting to bring in that level of money that you didn't have before is really difficult. And the schools that got in on the ground floor of this operation that we now know as college sports back in the 80s and 90s and determined that these are the best products and these are the best teams and these are the best conferences because they were the most washed and that generated the most money so they could get the best coaches and the best players and everything like that and had the best facilities. That's when everything took off. But you can't replicate that now. Because it's already been ingrained. There was only one chance to really grasp that opportunity. And you see this in the Big 12 right now. The Big 12 is a great example of of what I'm talking about and the time it takes to actually compete at the highest level in college athletics. Let's also talk about LinkedIn, though, because at the start of the new year, every small business owner is asking themselves the same question. What's the one move I can make that'll take my business to the next level in 2024? LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success all depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy. When you have so many qualified candidates, you get a you get a qualified candidate within 24 hours for 86% of small businesses. 86% get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. With LinkedIn, the process is intuitive, quick, and easy. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash locked on college. That's linkedin.com slash locked on college to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. All right. So just finishing this up and tying it back to the potentially future Pac-12. If if the Pac-12 were to add six schools from the Mountain West and four from the American, my argument is that's worthwhile because the highest ranked group of five conference going forward, conference champion, is going to get into the playoff. Even if they change the language to the five highest ranked conference champions, there are only four power conferences. (laughs) So a group of five conference champion is going to get in every single year. When it was six and six, I, I don't know if they've, I don't think they've officially made the change to five and seven, but regardless, I expect them to do that. And even when it was going to be six and six, Five power conferences, six conference champs with an auto bid. Well, you do the math. So they didn't officially put the language in there for, you know, the group of five, the power five or anything like that. Those are more, you know, media and fan terms. But we all understand what what, what the game is here and what is afoot. So look at the Big 12, for instance. The Big 12 this year added BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF. All of those programs in 2022 had some level of success. UCF, if memory serves, was playing in a bowl game. BYU was playing in a bowl game. They had an eight-win season. Cincinnati was also, I believe, playing in a bowl game. Houston, I think, was struggling. One of those teams made a bowl game this year. One. Just one. And it was UCF. They went six and six. No one was able to get through the conference And that's even in the Big 12, which is not one of the stronger Power 5 leagues in this college football season for 2023 and 2024. They weren't able to have a team 
end the season over 500 at the end of the regular season. I forget, honestly, if UCF won their bowl game, I think they lost. But I, I just look at that, and it's a great way to contextualize what I'm talking about, which is just because you have a group of five team that is good enough to win a, win a few games, win some games here or there, it's a different level. You need a certain caliber of coach. You have to now in the NIL era especially have enough money to attract good enough players to compete with teams that have got more money. And, and I think that there, there can certainly be a gray area. You mentioned your question, David. You know, Boise State, Fresno State, they're boarding. They absolutely are. Boise State also this year won the Mountain West, lost to UCLA. Now, could Boise State have been competitive in the Pac-12? Depends on how you define competitive. They probably would have looked like one of the new Big 12 teams. That sort of stuff takes time. Being able to build yourself into a winner in major college football, basketball is different, in major college football, from the group of five ranks to the power five ranks, just can't happen overnight. I mean, Cincinnati is the best example. A couple seasons ago, they were in the playoff and their first year in the Big 12 can't make a bowl game. It's hard. It's really hard. So that's the root of why the Pac-12 won't be a power conference. And then what you would be looking at is, well, you know, what if, if, this is an if, Pac, you know, college football wasn't going to merge into two conferences one day and they were going to, you know, go to, uh, they were going to stay they were going to, everything was going to stay put for 20 years. Well, could you build yourself into those, into that caliber of brands then? My argument is still no. You can build superior brands. You could get better media deals. You could have more money, but that gap is going to continue to exist, going to continue to exist because you don't have enough grandfathered in powers. You don't have to like it, but that's the way the college sports is. So, that's the long-winded way of answering your question, David. Great question. Great, great question. Uh, really, really interesting one. But I think you go back to the 80s and 90s and look at when everything really started to take off and how the money started flowing towards, you know, the biggest schools and the best programs. Not always the biggest schools. I mean, you know, TCU is a power program. But the the ascension, it can, it can happen, right? TCU was once a Mountain West team. They were in the national championship game last year. It's not as if it's impossible, but how long did it take TCU to get there? It is hard. It, it, it is hard. And they've been good for a while, but it is really hard to do. So let's talk about Washington here because Washington is playing Michigan in the national championship game. Oh, man. I saw a stat that Washington has won 10 straight games by 10 points or fewer. The last time they beat a team by double digits was a 59-32 to 32 win against Cal to begin Pac-12 play. That's how long it's been since Washington played a, a game that was decided by more than 10 points. It's been even longer since they lost. That was last season. This is a 22-game winning streak that Washington's bringing into the national championship. And yet, Michigan is a four-and-a-half-point favorite. Why? It doesn't make sense at some level, or does it? So here's where Vegas is coming from. Vegas, when adjudicating college football lines, I think looks at some level at the amount of composite talent that they judge to be on a particular roster. Historically in college football, there is something known as the blue chip ratio. Washington, if they win on Monday night, which they absolutely can, would be the first team in the modern era, I believe, 
to win with a blue chip ratio under 50%, meaning the number of four and five star kids you have on your roster compared to the number of non four and five star kids. Every national champion has had it at at over 50%. And Washington's is like in the mid to high 40s or, or somewhere in that range. And so Vegas sets lines that way. There are teams in every sport all the time that Vegas is not always able to understand. And a great example of this is TCU. TCU last year was favored to lose several times. They were about a touchdown underdog to Texas. Why? Texas got more composite talent. And I can already see and hear Washington fans in the YouTube comments or on Twitter going crazy about, see, this is why it's ridiculous. This is why it's that. Pretty tried and true formula to this point. Doesn't mean there aren't exceptions to the rule. And Washington certainly would be that should they win on Monday night. But that's the primary reason that Washington continues to be undervalued because they haven't won games by big margins, including against teams that aren't very good. And they don't have as much composite talent. You don't have to agree. But I think there's just a question of why is Washington an underdog? How is this happening again? This is why. This is what Vegas does. This is how they operate. And if you think that they're wrong, and I thought they were wrong in that semifinal game, and I said a long time ago, um, my my bull picks, by the way, for the Pac-12 spreads have been pretty darn good. I said Washington plus four and a half. I picked Washington to win the game outright, and they did. I don't know how I'm leaning on Monday night. I, I, I honestly don't. I can tell you I'm closer to picking the Huskies than Michigan, but I'm not out on Michigan yet. It's a really good football team, and it's an interesting matchup and a very different matchup than the one that Texas presented to Washington down in New Orleans. But I think that for the Huskies, they have thrived in this underdog role time and time again. Kalen DeBoer in the last two years. And and this is the other thing, too. It's not as if Vegas thinks Washington is some god-awful team for the last two seasons. In this winning streak that they have had, they've been an underdog five times. That's not a lot. (laughs) That is not a lot. They were favored against Oregon back in October, and they won the game. But they were underdogs against Oregon State because it was on the road. And guess what? They could have lost the game. They were underdogs of a big margin against Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game because they hadn't been playing well. Guess what? They were better. Vegas was absolutely wrong. Vegas thought that Texas was a better team, thought uh, Washington could win, but Vegas is a better team. Nope, Washington is a better team. So this is clearly a team that Vegas has not completely figured out. But TCU was doing the same sort of stuff last year. They would be a touchdown underdog. They were seven and a half point underdog to Michigan, seven and a half, I think, to Texas. Vegas couldn't figure them out. And then the national championship game came around. And there was another line of about seven and a half points. And then Georgia routed them. I don't see that happening because this Washington team is much better than that TCU team from a season ago. But the question as to why Vegas continues to make Washington an underdog and they've never lost the game when they are an underdog in the point spread because Penix and Dunze and McMillan and Polk, it's just an unstoppable combination. There's nothing you can do about those guys. I, I, I firmly believe that. If they're in the zone, can't stop them. Full, that, that's it. You can't stop them. You only have two corners. So you're going to have a receiver on a safety somewhere. That just doesn't go very well. So that's why Washington has been an underdog and is an underdog again against Michigan. If you think it's ridiculous, 
You're not going to get a whole heck of a lot of pushback from me, and you're free to go bet it over at FanDuel. Washington, four-and-a-half-point dogs to the Wolverines in the national championship game. All right, let's hop into the mailbag here. YouTube comments are always open. So, too, is X, formerly known as Twitter, at Smalls underscore 55 or at LO underscore Pac-12. This question from Bud. In a perfect world, the Heisman Trophy winner would be selected after the entire football season is over, including the bowl games and playoffs. Your thoughts? Couldn't have said it any better myself. If this were the case, Michael Penix would be the Heisman Trophy winner, regardless of what happens on Monday night. But it is just another example of the messed up world of scheduling in college football. The calendar and scheduling, it's all backwards. It's all weird. The incentive structure benefits nobody. Doesn't benefit coaches, doesn't benefit players, doesn't benefit fans, doesn't benefit the sport and the attention that you can generate for it. It just packing off-season content during this into a time when the season is ongoing If you're talking about this from a marketing standpoint, you want to generate the most amount of interest possible for your sport. There is no way that that makes any sense because it doesn't. It doesn't. It's just another example. So, yeah, pretty easy answer there. Uh, I'm fully with you. Picking the Heisman after bowl season and everything, I'm on board. A couple of players here uh, that entered the transfer portal, one of which went to the NFL draft. We'll get to him in a moment. But DJ Uyunglele former Oregon State quarterback, former Clemson quarterback before that, is going back to the ACC. DJU is going to play for Florida State next year and Mike Norvell, that Florida State team that just got snubbed from the college football playoff in the eyes of some. I'm not one of those individuals, by the way. For all of you who wanted Florida State to be playing against Michigan uh, the other day, let me tell you, that game would have been a snooze fest. Absolute positive snooze fest. I think Florida State scores less than 10 points. In fact, probably the same number they put up against Georgia. I know they had a lot of opt-outs there. I'm here to tell you, if you don't have a good enough quarterback against that Michigan defense, it's not going to go very well for you. So DJU is going to Florida State. I think DJ is a guy who gives you a pretty high floor, but a pretty low ceiling at quarterback. And Jordan Travis is someone who I think had a pretty high floor and a high ceiling. I think Jordan Travis was a Heisman caliber guy. Now, I I don't know that, or I don't think that he was on the level of Michael Penix, Bo Nix, or even a Caleb Williams or whatnot, but that guy is a plus quarterback in college football. Going from Jordan Travis to DJ Uyunglele is a step down. How big of a step down? That's going to depend on how well DJ fits into Mike Norvell's offensive system. But I think that for Florida State next year, They could be poised for a pullback when you look at the players they're going to lose to the draft. Their roster is loaded. They have got that defensive lineman whose name is escaping me right now. That guy's a dude. Verse, I think his name is Jared Verse, uh, if if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Jared Verse of Florida State. That guy is a big-time player. The receivers they have, big-time players. They're not going to be there next year. Now, Mike Norvell's been very active in the transfer portal, and presumably you don't bring in DJ Uyunglele if you don't think he's going to be the starter. And guess what? I watched Brock Glenn and Tate Rodemaker play some football this year. DJU is better than those guys. He, he's absolutely better than those guys. But I don't know if that's someone who makes me think, oh, Florida State is a contender next year. Well, they've got DJ now. No, I mean, you could get into the playoff. I don't know if you can win a national championship with DJ Uyunglele as your quarterback. 
You'd have to have one heck of a team around him. Heck, I thought Oregon State had a really good team around him this year. They went eight and four, and it was a disappointing year. So I, I think that DJ will have some success, can do some good things. But do I look at him and, you know, compare him to the rest of the potential college football field next year and think he's one of the, you know, five, 10 best quarterbacks in college football? No. Is he top 20? Probably. If you're just talking at the power four next year or power five with the pack two being in there, the Cougs and the Beavs. Yeah, he's probably in the top 20, but I, I don't know that he's in, inside the top 10 because I, I think he's good, but he's got limitations. Like he was mostly the same guy at Oregon State that he was at Clemson. I think he was a little better with the Beavs because he had better run support. But overall, the inconsistencies, the low completion percentage, and the ability to make special throws, it was all there at Clemson. It was all there at Oregon State, too. Speaking of Oregon State, Silas Bolden entered the transfer portal. He was the Beavs' leading receiver this year. It was either him or Anthony Gould. I'm pretty sure it was Bolden, though. And Gould is going to the NFL draft, but Bolden is in the portal. I talked with Carter Baines and Beaver Blitz on this show a week or two ago about the need for Oregon State to add a wide receiver, and that need has been intensified severely with Bolden's announcement. It's pretty clear that Trent Bray is just going to have a tough go of it in terms of putting together a roster next year that looks anything like the team they put on the field this year. That doesn't mean there won't be individually talented or capable players, but they've lost one of their top corners, their leading tackler, their tight end, their two tackles, one of whom is project, Fuaga's to project as a first-round pick, according to Mel Kiper Jr., which, which is awesome. Guy's a stud. Josh Gray, I think, will also get drafted somewhere. Silas Bolden and Anthony Gould and your quarterbacks. I don't know how much harder the roster can get gutted at this point, I think Anthony Hankerson from Colorado is a nice addition to supplement Damian Martinez. I haven't heard anything about Martinez going anywhere, but boy, that should be the top priority for Trent Bray right now because he's got his quarterbacks, right? You've got a couple of guys who I'm going to talk about more on tomorrow's show coming in, Jabari Johnson and Giovanni McCoy. I think that could be a fun battle. But Damian Martinez is unequivocally the most talented player on Oregon State's roster, and the most important one, not just from a locker room standpoint, but just an on-field production standpoint. Guys who you know can produce on the field and help you win football games. It it, it, it is pretty rough right now for Oregon State. It is pretty rough. I, I don't think it's all bad, certainly. I think the quarterback announcements are overall positive, but, boy, I did not expect to see Silas Bolden's name end up in the transfer portal. But that's the world, unfortunately, that we're in. So last thing here before I get out of here for today, Cam Ward didn't go to Miami. He's going to the NFL draft instead. To say that I was caught off guard by this announcement would be accurate because I did not anticipate Cam Ward going to the NFL after the transfer portal reports came about and Brock Heward reported, yeah, he's got a bunch of offers of a million dollars or so. I don't know how Ohio state wasn't all over cam ward. I think he fits what they want to do. And I thought that that was a perfect fit, but Hey, they decided to go in a different direction. They've got three guys that are going to battle it out in spring football. 
All right, that's the decision they've made. I do think the NFL is a better destination than Miami because Mario Cristobal's track record with quarterbacks by any objective measure is bad. And I don't think Cam Ward would have had the success there that many thought he could have. But he was looking at Miami. I think he was looking at Florida or Florida State, one of the other Florida schools as well. For him to have come down on, I'm going to the NFL draft, I just didn't see that coming because he was one of the top commodities at the most important position in all of sports in the transfer portal. And everybody's going all over the place. It's like that Dr. Pepper commercial. It's the transfer portal. It's out of control. You know, like I love that commercial. I think it's hilarious. But I, I think that for Cam Ward, for him to have not have found a home is not reflective of his lack of talent. I think he got a draft grade back from the scouting community and he decided eh, there's no offer that I think is a home run spot. Like there were Auburn rumors, there were Ohio State rumors, there were Miami rumors. There were all sorts of spots that had reportedly or rumoredly or allegedly, I guess is the word, made contact with him. I'm a little surprised because I think he still can develop further. I'm sure Washington State fans listening to or watching this will agree with me on that. He still has more development before he becomes the best version of himself. And I thought going to Ohio State would have been a great fit. I thought Auburn with Hugh Freeze would have been a really interesting fit. And to see him play in the SEC would have been fun. But Cam Ward to the NFL did not see that, nor did I see Silas Bolden in the portal. But being caught off guard by announcements in college football nowadays, that's par for the course. Appreciate everyone listening. I'll see you next time. And until then, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.